I don't think it's... Um, I think it's probably not terribly surprising to most of you that the church in America is rapidly losing its influence in the culture. And in fact, the church in America is dying very quickly. In fact, statistics show that really only 20% of people in America are associated with any particular church which means 80% of the people in America now are finding other things to do with their weekends other than go to church. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but between 8,000 and 10,000 churches in America will close their doors this year. Uh, Between 2010 and 2012, more than half of all churches in America, um, not one of those churches added a new member. And each year, nearly 3 million people who would have considered themselves to be, uh, who, have said, who would have said that they were previously churchgoers, 3 million of those people enter the ranks of the religiously unaffiliated every year. Now, there are many reasons for this, I think. Uh, technology is one. A lot of people think to themselves, well, why go to church? I can, I can download the sermon on an app, listen to it on a podcast. Why do I need to go to church? Um, another reason, I think, is busyness. A lot of parents have come to believe that their kids' uh, sporting events are way more important than um, having their kids go to church. Um, Generally, people have more choices about what to do with their weekends. Uh, Religious pluralism is on the rise in America as well. There's all sorts of reasons. I haven't even begun to hit them all. But I think perhaps the most significant reason that this is happening, that the church is rapidly dying and rapidly losing its influence in our culture is a reason that no one wants to admit. And that is that the church itself in America has lost her way. I frankly think that there is very little understanding in the local church itself of why the church exists and what makes it unique compared to other institutions in the world. What, you know, what, is, what is it that's so different about the church? Why is it unique? Surprisingly, the passage that we're going to look at today speaks to that very issue. And I think if we as a church could get our hearts and our minds around what this passage is going to teach us, I think there's no limit to the impact that we, that our church, could have in this city. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn again to Exodus chapter 19. We started on this passage last week. I kind of did a half of the sermon last week, and I'm going to, do a, I'm going to finish this last half of the sermon uh, today. For those of you who are new to City Church, maybe those of you who have been listening to us uh, on our app or, or by our podcast, um, we're in a series that is entitled The Gospel in the Last Place that You Would Expect to Find It. And, and as I said, today we're doing the last half of the sermon that we started last week. Exodus 19 okay, is the passage that we're going to really start in. And Exodus 19 begins a very important section of Scripture. Because this is the passage, this is the section of Scripture where God gives Israel <clears throat> the law, which reaches its highest point, frankly, in the Ten Commandments. And what I want to do this morning is I want to begin at Exodus chapter 19, verse 2. We read this passage last week, but I want to remind ourselves of it. So let's read it again this week. Before we do that, can I just ask you guys to do me a favor? If everybody would just stand up for just a minute. Stand up. <clears throat> All right, now do something. I don't care what it is to loosen yourself up and wake yourself up because you guys seem really dead this morning, and I want to see, I want to feel some energy in the room. So I don't care, jumping jacks, 
Get down, do push-ups, whatever you got to do to get the blood running. But come on, let's, let's get this thing going. All right? All right, good. Okay. All right, now sit down and stay interested. Okay? Exodus chapter 19, verse 2. Are we excited about going to verse 2? Okay, good. Here we go. After they set out from Rephidim, they, this is the people of Israel, entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Or as they say today, mountain. Then Moses, have you noticed that people do that? They don't say their T's in the middle of sentences anymore? Okay, well, anyway. Uh, I noticed that. But then I'm down with the young people in our culture. So... Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and he said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak, Moses, to the Israelites. So Moses went back, and he summoned the elders of the people, and he sat before them all the words, excuse me, all the words that the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer uh, back to the Lord. Now, if you would just give me a couple of minutes uh, so that I can review some of the things that I uh, said last week in the first half of the sermon. Uh, I made the point that when it comes to the moral law, people kind of, you know, they tend to fall into one or two, uh, one of two camps. On the one hand, there are those people who are all about the law. It's the main thing they do in their religion. They follow the rules. They obey the rules, whatever the religious, whatever the rules and uh, laws are of their religion. They're all about it because in their mind, that's how they know they are worthy. It's how they know they are worthy of salvation and being accepted by God. On the other hand, there are people who want a spirituality that has no laws and no codes, and that feels antiquated to have laws and codes, and they feel like we're more advanced than that, and we don't need those kinds of things. But both perspectives are really very simplistic and naive as it comes to the idea of the moral law that God gives Israel here in this passage, 19 through 24, and in the Ten Commandments specifically. The Bible's teaching on the purpose and the value of the law is much deeper and much more nuanced than, any of, than, than either of those two positions. Now, last week I said that I wanted to show you five reasons that God gave the law or five uh, things the law could do in your life if you would use it and let it. Uh, we got through two of those. And actually, we started... With one thing that we said the law is absolutely not given for. And we said it was absolutely not given to save you. It was not given to save you. And we saw that definitively. You can see it here in this text. I'm not going to go over everything we talked about last week. But uh, God repeatedly emphasizes in this text that he saved Israel. That it was his work. That he brought them out of Egypt. That it wasn't their obedience or deservedness. It was his love for them that saved them. Uh, He hadn't even given them the law when he saved them. The law comes after he had saved them. And so it's not given to save you. If you've ever been part of a religion that says you've got to do these things or else you will lose your salvation or you don't have salvation if you don't do those things, that is not Christianity. I don't care if you learned it in a church. I don't care if you learned it. I don't care where you learned it. 
It is not Christianity. Christianity is absolutely different than that. Christianity says you're saved. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're saved. Regardless of your obedience to the law, you're saved. Okay? And I can't emphasize that enough. If, if you get your head around that, it will change your entire approach to Christianity. And you will see that Christianity is actually very different than every other religion and every other philosophy in the world. So if the law wasn't given to save, what was it given for? Why, why would I obey it if I don't have to to be saved? Well, we said last week that one purpose of the law was to create intimacy between us and God. Okay? That's one of the reasons. Uh, the phrase in verse 5, you see this little phrase there. It said, treasured possession. Well, that's what that means, that, that God wanted to create intimacy. It was his way of showing us, giving us the law was his way of showing us, as any lover does, what he likes, what brings him pleasure, what he values. And so we can, we can bring him pleasure. Any good lover wants to bring the other lover pleasure. And so we can bring him pleasure by doing these things in the law. The second reason that we said he gave it was to create a radically distinct community. That's what the word holy means in verse 6. Uh, these, we are to be a people, Israel was to be, we are to be a people who live differently, not weirdly. Okay, not being weird, like, you know, not being anti-culture and not, you know, having to just do weird stuff and like you can't listen to music and watch TV and movies and all, not being weird, but just being beautiful, beautifully different because we've already been saved, we've already been accepted, we've already been valued, right, by God. And because of that, we become a people who don't have to prove our worth. We don't have to get over on top of other people all the time as if we win in this as, as, as if we're in this win-lose proposition. Okay? Um, we're to be a people who use things like sex, money, and power in beautiful ways to benefit other people rather than to exploit and to manipulate in selfish and addictive ways. Okay? That's what we said last week. Okay, so that's. That's, the last, that's last week's half of the sermon. Now, I want to get to the last half of the sermon. I want to give you the three other ways, that, the three other reasons that God gave the law, the three other values of the law to your life. Okay? And here's the third reason. God gave the law to turn us into a kingdom of priests. He gave it to turn us into... A kingdom of priests. And you notice, uh, those are his very words in verse 6. He says, says, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He says, okay, now what does that mean? Well, the job of a priest in the Old Testament, the job of a priest was to mediate God's presence uh, to all of the people. In other words, words, it it was a priest's job to get uh, people into the presence of God and let, let them see who God is. That's what an individual priest did. But notice, he doesn't, he's not saying just uh, like an individual priest or just like a certain group of priests. He, he's saying, he's saying he, I want to make you into a kingdom of priests. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, what he means is that everyone in the community of Israel, everyone in the nation, together, 
becomes a vehicle through which the world can see who God is and what God is like. Now, now look, now think about, okay, he's, he's talking about everybody together. Everybody in the community together demonstrate who God is. Now that's, that's a very different emphasis to spirituality than you and I have. And the reason for that is that most of us have no idea how much we have been influenced and shaped by American individualism, right? America values the rugged individualist who goes out and does it on his or her own. I did it my way, right? Would you like me to sing that song to you? I did it my way, Frank Sinatra says, right? And as we all sing that when it comes to that. I did it my way, okay. Well, I was talking to a friend the other day, and we're talking about spiritual growth. And uh, specifically, we were talking about the class that we've been doing on Wednesday nights, 12 Steps to Spiritual Growth. And he was telling me that before taking the class, if, if he would have asked me, he said, before I took the class, if I would have asked you how to grow spiritually, I would have been hoping that you would have told me about a book I could read or a sermon series that I could listen to or something like that. All of which, I don't know if you notice, all of those are what? They're very individualistic. You can do those things alone, by yourself, at home. Okay? But he said that what he's been learning in the class is that spiritual growth can't happen in isolation. That it has to happen in the context of relationships. Because you see, most sin is relational. And there, you know, there, in the context of relationships, you can begin to see what's preventing spiritual growth in your life. What God wants us to do is, and I know this is hard for us as Americans to believe, but there are things about our culture that are not correct. God wants us to, notice we have the words around the banner, around the room on the banners, they say believe, experience, community, and then the third word is the word unlearn. God wants us to unlearn this American individualistic approach to life and to spirituality and to see that together we are to become a community, a city within a city through which the rest of the world can see God. And I want you to know that that's precisely how Jesus thought. I want you to listen to this very famous passage. Some of you guys know this passage. It's found in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, some of you guys are familiar with this, You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. And then he goes on and he says, Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You can't see it in the English, but in the Greek language, the word you, there are different ways that that can be spelled that tips you off to whether it's singular or plural. Guess what? The word you is plural. It's not singular. So this, that verse, Jesus isn't saying, you individually, you, Jeff Kincaid, are the light of the world. It's saying, you collectively are the light of the world. Now, I know that you guys learned that in Sunday school. A very, you know, some of you guys that went to Sunday school learned that song very differently, right? Because you, you said, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Come on, sing with me. Don't make me stand up here and sing alone. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Okay, well, your Sunday school teachers were absolutely wrong when they taught you that. Okay? 
Because it's not this little light of mine. It's this little light of ours. We're going to let it. We're going to let it shine. But you see, because we're Americans, we change the plural to singular to make it just about me. Me as an individual. I, me. I'm going to let it shine. No. As a group, as a community, as a city within a city, we're going to let our light shine. Look at the context. Jesus is talking in Matthew 5. He's talking about a city. And my friend, an individual does not a city make. What Jesus is saying is that, is that people will see the glory of God when, when, when they see a community of people living as an alternate city within a city. They will see us using sex and money and power in ways that are radically different than the rest of the world. People will see what God is about by how we live and how we relate to one another and how we relate to the rest of the world. And look, here's why the church's influence in America is rapidly on the decline. We have lost sight of the power of community to change the world. When a person comes to church on a Sunday morning, they are declaring to the rest of the world, I believe God is alive. I believe that Jesus Christ not only died on the cross, but that he was raised again, and that he's very real, and that he's very here, uh, he's very present, and that he's here in our midst. I believe that, and so do these other people, and I want to join with other people who believe that, and I want to proclaim that, and I want to be under that, and I want to learn about that, and I want to love him. That's what it means when we come together to do that. And I want to join with these other people to proclaim this to the rest of the world. I can't wait to tell you guys what the next idea is after the porn debate's over about what we're going to do to facilitate change in Evansville. I am so excited about it. I can hardly keep a secret. Uh, And I believe that what we're going to do is going to be a game changer. I am so excited about it. I want to tell you right now, but i got to get through the porn debate before I can tell you about it. But once we get through this, i got an idea that is going to blow you away. Anyway, um, I think we've lost sight of the power of community to change a city. Now look, I am not throwing guilt around here. Uh, That's not how we roll here. But uh, I am asking you to examine your own lives. Is there any way for you to square what you're hearing here and what you're seeing in this text? Is there any way for you to square that with your current practice, your current practice of church involvement? Because you see, you know, there are some of you that come to church, you know, maybe you come once a month, maybe you come twice a month, maybe, maybe you even come every week, and you kind of swoop down, and you take notes, and maybe you feel inspired when you leave. But can you square that with what you're seeing here about the power of a community within a community, a kingdom of priests, with that pattern in your life that you just come and then you leave. Like you come, you take your notes, you get inspired, then you go home. And then maybe you come next week, maybe you don't, but you, you know, can you square that with what you see here? And I'm going to suggest to you that those of you who just like kind of come in and then you're not involved in any other way and you're, you know, very sporadic, I'm going to say that you probably can't square that. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to throw guilt around. I'm not. It's up to you to examine it. I don't have anybody in my mind right now. 
except the people who aren't here today. Then I have those people. No, I'm kidding. You. I'm kidding. You. I don't have them in my mind. I really don't. I don't have anybody in my mind. I'm asking you to examine your own involvement in this church with what we see here. And I'm going to suggest that if it's just kind of come and then go, I'm going to suggest that you probably can't square that with what the text says because you have to be deeply involved with a community of Christians who are working on being a holy nation, a kingdom of priests together. We're working together on that. Which means you have to work with with friends in the church to say, I have to look at every part of my life and I have to see how every part of my life could be different on the basis of this new principle of acceptance and salvation apart from the law, apart from all of the rules and regulations. How would my life be different if I knew that I'm, I'm accepted by the subject and object of life, that I don't have to prove my worth anymore? How would that affect the way that you approach your career? That you don't have to prove that you're worthy. You don't have to prove you're not a loser. Um, you don't have to do that. It's not about you. That's not what your career is about. How would that change your career? How would it change how you use your money? If you began to realize, I've got a God who loves me and cares for me, and he's all over me, and he's on my side, and how would that change how you use your money? And how would it change how you use power in your social relationships? If you began to understand, I don't have to get over on everybody. God's already said, man, you are worthy. You're the object of my affection. You're the object of my eye. How would that change your life? How would it change every part of your life if you began to understand, I'm worthy, I'm accepted. Why? Because God said so. Not because I did all these things. Not because I climbed the corporate ladder. Not because I'm worth so much money. Not because these people think I'm great. But it's because God says so. And he's the one that created this place. He's the one that set this whole thing in motion. How would that change every part of your life if you understood that? Unless you're in a community that is accountable to one another to talk about those things and to work those things out and to exhibit those things in the context of the community within a community. You really can't actually obey the law. You can't do this on an individualistic basis. You can't. And I hope that you will take time to reflect on that because I'll tell you something. If City Church is going to be a catalyst for change, positive change in the city of Evansville, it won't be by individuals. It will be by the power of a community working together. That's what will change this city. And that is what we have. The, last very, the very last banner, both sides of the room, says change the city. That's what we're after. It won't happen by you as an individual doing it. It will happen as a community. Okay. Fourth reason that God gave the law. Fourth reason that God gave the law. He gave the law to show you how your heart really works. He gave you the law to show you how your heart really works. And let me, let me explain what I mean by that. First, turn over to chapter 20. Chapter 20, and we're just going to read the first three verses. We read them last week, but I want to, want to remind ourselves of them again. Here we go. And God spoke all these words. He said, I am the Lord your God, again, who brought you up out of Egypt. You notice that? Okay. It's not that you worked real hard to come out of Egypt. It's that I brought you out of Egypt. Out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. 
Uh, I just, I really wanted to just read the beginning of those Ten Commandments. That, that was the first of the Ten Commandments. And I just wanted to read that to you because I want you to see that the foundation of the Ten Commandments is a single foundational principle. Before God ever says, don't kill and don't lie and don't steal, he says, have no other gods before me. Now, this is what he's saying in that. Okay, that's, this is why he does that. He's saying... Your fundamental problem, every one of us in this room, your fundamental problem is that you take things and you let them become more important than God. Now, back in, the, back in this day, they did that with physical um, little, you know, idols, okay? Today, you know, there are people who still have idols, but, but most of our idols, at least here in America, most of our idols are psychological idols, and you see, what, what he's saying is that if you're having a problem in any other area of your life, if you're failing to love well, if you're failing to tell the truth, if you're failing to be generous, if you're failing in any other way, it's because of this. That you have put some other God above the God. Some other idol above God. And this, you see, is, is the first commandment on which all of the other commandments are based. It means that this is the problem under every other problem in your life. This is the sin under every other sin in your life. If you're having a problem in your behavior or any other problem with intractable, destructive feelings, it's because of this. You're taking some lesser God and you're making it over the God of the universe. You're taking something inanimate And you're making it over the living God. You're putting it over the living God and saying, that is my God in my life. It's because of this. And by the way, this is what we're learning in our 12 Steps of Spiritual Growth class on Wednesday nights. No matter what you say, and this is true of every one of us, no matter what you say with your mind and with your mouth, now get this, something other than God is the functional integrative center of your life. And that's true for every one of you. And me too. Something else other than the living God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ is the functional, integrative center of your life. And let me give you a few quick um, illustrations about how this works. Let's say, for instance, that you say... um, that you're stingy. And you're like, yeah, you know, I need to be less stingy. I need to be more generous with people. Here's the thing. If your money is more important than God in giving you a sense of security in this world, like in this, in this, in this world where things change so rapidly and where it seems like nothing is safe, if, if your money is what gives you a sense of safety and security in this world, you're never going to be able to give it away generously to people. Never. You'll never be able to do that. Under the sin of stinginess, you see, is the idolatry of money. You're making that your God. That, that not God, not the living God of the universe gives you security and safety in this world. Money does. Okay? Here's another one. You tell a lie. You don't even know why you told the lie. Well, why did you lie? 
Well, it's because if you look underneath, you'll see that it could be because you were afraid of how you would look if you told the truth. Or maybe you thought you would lose money or something if you didn't. And you see, again, something besides Jesus, maybe other people's opinions of you, maybe money, whatever, something besides Jesus is more important than Jesus at that moment. God's saying that has become the functional integrative center of your life. Maybe you break up with somebody that you love. And you're going to feel terrible after you break up with somebody. And you're going to feel terrible for a long time. But, if, but if, if you're devastated for months and months and months on end, and maybe even years on end, here's what's going on. Idolatry pathologically intensifies normal emotions, and it makes them intractable and debilitating. Okay. Underneath... Everything that's going wrong with your heart and underneath every wrong behavior that you can't stop and every bad set of destructive feelings that you don't seem to be able to stem, there is an idol that you have set before God. Maybe it's that person that you were dating or that you were married to. That you've said, that is more important to me than God. And what, what, as I said, what idolatry does is it takes normal emotions and it intensifies them, and it makes them retractable and destructive and debilitating. This is how your heart works. And so you see, without the law of God, you would never understand how your heart really works. You'd never understand what is really going on. This is one of the reasons that God gave us the law, so that we could understand that we all have idols things that we put before God, and they are all, all of those idols are debilitating, destructive, and addictive in nature. Okay, last thing, and then we got to go. Last reason God gave the law, and, and it was this, simply this, to drive you to the blood of Christ. To drive you to the blood of Christ. I want you to just look at chapter 24 for just a moment. Chapter 24, just flip over there because you're going to want to see this. Verse 7, chapter 24, verse 7. Moses is reading the law to Israel. And he says, the text says, Then he took the book of the covenant, that's the law, and he read it to the people, and they responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood. This is the blood of a sacrificed animal. He took the blood, and he sprinkled it on the people, and he said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with with all these words. It's kind of humorous that these people said, oh, they, they see the law, and they're like, we'll do it. We'll, we'll obey everything. We're all in. Uh, that shows their naivete about their depth of sin. Many years ago, almost 30 years ago now, uh, on the night that I first believed in Christ, I knelt down next to my bed, and I, believe, I, I told the Lord, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins, and I believe that you're raised again. And I didn't know anything about Christianity at all, other than that Jesus died on the cross, and I, I knew I was a sinner. And so I just said, I said to him, I said, I will never sin again. I promise. I will never sin again. And pretty much to this day, I've lived up to that. <laughs> just ask my family. They'll tell you. That's not true. Okay. But that's what's happening here. See, it's impossible. But they think it's possible because they don't know the depth of the sin of their hearts. So what does Moses do? He sprays them with the blood of a sacrificed animal. 
And I know that, you know, so the blood covers them. But I, I know that sounds gross. I know that sounds weird to us. But remember, the culture that we're reading about was not a written culture. It was a very dramatic culture. Um, and it was an oral culture. And so Moses does this to communicate in a way that they would remember. And what's the point of this blood that he's covered them with? Well, here at the giving of the law, despite the naive enthusiasm of these people, God knows that they will never be able to obey it fully because of the idolatry of their hearts, just like ours. And so he has Moses cover them in the blood of a sacrifice to point them and to point us to the one who would come many thousands of years after that happened, to the one who would come who would fully obey the law. And yet he would be sacrificed. His blood would be shed for our inability to do what we promised that we're going to do. He would take the punishment that we deserve. And this one, his name is Jesus Christ. Because of his death, you don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to live with this fear that you're not worthy. You don't have to live with this fear of, have I done enough? Have I proved that I've done enough? Is God happy with me? Look, if you've trusted in Christ, if you've come under the blood of Jesus Christ, you don't have to be afraid anymore. Of course you're going to fail. Of course you are. Of course you're going to fall down. But you don't have to be afraid. Because Jesus has taken the curse of the covenant so that you, like those people that Moses sprayed with blood, can come close to God without fear. And there's the gospel. In the last place that you expect, that you would ever expect to find it, at the giving of the law, you wouldn't have expected to find the gospel of grace there, would you? But there it is. And there's the consistency of the Bible and the supremacy of Christ and the superiority of the gospel over every other religion and over every other philosophy in the world. Bow your heads with me and let's close in prayer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you so much for this truth, for this passage of scripture, that even here, the giving of the law We see the gospel. It points us to you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray for people in the room today who may not yet have come to a place where they have believed upon you. Maybe they've lived their entire lives. Maybe they've gone to church all their lives. Maybe they they haven't gone to church, but they've lived their entire lives thinking, I don't know. I don't know what will happen to me. I don't know if if God loves me. Oh, God couldn't possibly love me because of all I've, I've done. Would you reassure every person here because of what Christ has done for them on the cross, that you love them deeply. And for those who've never believed upon that, that maybe even this moment today would be a moment that they would place their faith in him. That they would come under the blood of the sacrificed Lamb of God for their sins and my sins. Lord, I pray this morning that as a church that we would become a community a city within a city and that as a result of what Jesus Christ has done for us that we would bring radical 
hope and change to the city of Evansville. It needs it. But I pray that we would recognize that won't happen as individuals, but it happens as a community. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your scriptures that speak to us about grace and the beauty of the gospel. Lord, I pray for the people here this morning that have been exposed to something other than the beauty of the gospel and and the grace of God. I pray that you would quiet the mouths of those who may preach a legalistic gospel. And I pray that the people that are here today would see the beauty of the gospel in a way that perhaps they've never seen it before and that they would respond to it. Thank you, Lord, that you saved us apart from us. Thank you also for giving us a revelation of your moral character in the law. And while it is not the source of righteousness, it is always the course of righteousness. And it is ultimately fulfilled in you, Lord Jesus Christ. We worship your name. Amen.